question, what kind of cities do we want to live in? How do we want our cities to be? Cannot be divorced from the question of what kind of people we want to be. What kind of humanity we wish to create amongst ourselves and how we want to create it. And it is that mutual constitution of the city and who we are and what we are that is something which is, I think, again, very important to reflect upon. This is The City, an hour dedicated to a critical discussion of urban issues. And welcome to the program here on CITR 101.9 FM, CITR.ca, syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM and available as a podcast at thecityfm.org. I'm Andy Longhurst. Thanks so much for tuning in. Urban geographer Nicholas Lynch discusses the findings of a recent study uh, showing an increasingly divided metro Vancouver region and a disappearing middle class. And we're revisiting this important discussion um, from a year ago, from April 2013. So we're going back into the urban archives of the city. You're tuned into the program here on CITR. Stay tuned. It's an hour dedicated to critical urban discussions Stay with us. And welcome to the program. As I mentioned, uh, we're headed back in to the urban archives uh, here at the city, and we're revisiting an important discussion from uh, April of 2013, so uh, just about a year now, um, and it certainly has continuing relevance uh, today, um, probably increasingly so. Um, so urban social geographer Nicholas Lynch uh, is co-author um, of a past uh, report that came out called Divisions and Disparities in Lotus Land, Socio-Spatial Income Polarization in Greater Vancouver, 1970-2005. to 2005. And the report was originally published in October 2012 by the University of Toronto's City Centre. And the research presents worrisome trends with an increasingly divided Vancouver and a disappearing uh, middle class or middle income segment of the population. And on the program, we discussed the social geography of polarization across the region, the implications and possible policy solutions. And I just wanted to bring this back because I think it is uh, an important topic and uh, one of increasing relevance for the region. So going back to April 2013, uh, this is a conversation with geographer Nicholas Lynch. Back in 2003, 2004, uh, uh, David Olchansky was a a social worker, sociologist and sort of general urban specialist in Toronto was given some money uh, by the uh, by the Canadian government to conduct some research on as well as uh, you know some some non-charity or sorry non-profit or charitable organizations Toronto put money in to, to discover what was happening in Toronto in terms of this concept of polarization and inequality uh, he came out with a, a quite an amazing story narrative um, and research about Toronto showing three distinct cities in Toronto um, since that report, which was extremely popular, uh, you know, even got press with the with the mayor at the time, uh, Miller, um, uh, they they spun that into questions of what's happening in the other Canadian CMAs, other Canadian major major Canadian cities, and so we were lucky enough to get funded for some research here in Vancouver to ask the same question: what's happening with polarization and income change in Vancouver? Um, so so that was uh, that's really what we've what we've done here is done that research. So let's let's go into some of those findings. Um, the report is titled uh, "Divisions and Disparities in Lotus Land." Um, what are those divisions and disparities, and what are some of the major findings coming out of the report? Yeah, well, l- let me first say that uh, that you know cities ha- have always been divided. They've always been um, uh, in some ways divided, and and for the longest time, urban scholars have have focused on you know asking the question how how of race, class, religion. Um, how how have these things uh, really impacted um, the f- morphology and the sociology of the city? Uh, we've we've been we've been interested here in asking the question, of course, 
um, what kind of new what kind of new configurations are we seeing in Vancouver? And uh, and really, the, what we're finding and what we what we sort of found um, in in our research is that Vancouver is is is, is gone from primarily a middle class city in 1970 uh, to a to a, well, what was firmly a middle class city to a highly um, divided city, uh, specifically by income, by socioeconomic income sta- status. Uh, and and this means that of course that we're we're seeing uh, a polarization, if you will. So um, a polarization of neighbor at the neighborhood level um, of groups growing in the higher income level and and groups growing at the lower income level and an, a, almost an evisceration of the middle class, slow evisceration. It's not complete. Uh, it's not even, uh, but it's but it's certainly happening. And so, uh, like the Toronto case study, we we sort of focus on on asking the question: Do we have three cities in, in Vancouver? And and it's not the same situation as in Toronto. The the, the divisions and the, essentially the inequality and the polarization in Toronto is much worse. Uh, but but it's not to say that. Uh, but that's to say that you know Vancouver actually we're seeing we're seeing a case of of uh, of quite a quite an amazing um, rate of polarization and inequality as well. When you talk about the three cities. Um you create, you sort of separate um, some categories based on income and create um, a middle class. And can you talk about the the methodology or, or how you went about um, creating these categories to actually say that, oh, the middle class yeah. is is disappearing within the city and that it is more polarized? Yeah, so methodologically, of course, when, when, you, when you're studying um, socioeconomic status, uh, you have to make categories and you have to, you have to sort of think about and and de- de- define categories in order to show you know uh, income change and difference over time. One of the things that we did was, and, and, and I have to say that you know defining the middle class becomes kind of arbitrary in a way. Uh, you certainly have to follow through when you make your category. You have to follow through in all forms of statistical analysis with that same category. The the what we did is we we defined the middle class by. Uh, uh, specifically a range, right? So if the average, we use the average or the median income in Vancouver, and we said, okay, any any group that um, that is above 15% of that average income, if they're above 15% above, those those we're going to categorize as higher income groups. Anybody below the 15% uh, median income, so f- median income and 15% below, we, we categorize as sort of lower uh, income. And so middle income becomes a range in that 15 plus or minus. Now, of course, you can tra- you can change uh, your metric. You can say twenty uh, percent or etc. So in Toronto they used a twenty percent metric, and in Vancouver we used a fifteen percent metric um, to show to show income change. Uh, now of course, as I said, these categories they're they're constructed, right? They're not natural, and so um, we have to we have to acknowledge those categories and follow through with that. Uh, so it, it, you know, for for our for our purpose, that fifteen percent above above and below really worked for defining the middle class in our research. Um, and uh, and and clearly, what we see is is even if you do tra- change that number to twenty percent, or uh, you still see essentially a hollowing out of the middle of the middle income groups. And that means that uh, we're we're having a, a good number of people in Vancouver that are going from middle income to upper income, and more importantly, and a good number of people going from what they what used to be middle income to lower income, right? So we're seeing an expansion of those two groups in both poles. So what does that geography then look like if you are seeing the hollowing out of, mm-hmm. of uh, middle class households yeah. and um, growing numbers of households at the bottom? Uh, how does that play out within the city and, and I guess secondly um, uh, across the region? Yeah. So uh, one, of the, one of the really interesting findings of our research um, is that we, we're starting to see a, a sort of a new social socioeconomic morphology of the city. And so, you know, we, we, we do several different things. The first one we do is, first thing we do is we take a snapshot of 1970 and we compare that snapshot to 2005. We also do a sort of a, a 1970-2005 overlay, now change map. So the first one is, is the snapshot, 1970. Um, we see a sort of a post, uh, post-war, um, you know, industrial uh, staple society in Vancouver, primarily a city defined by um, by middle class groups in the suburbs. You know, the classic suburban Canadian suburban dream is is alive and well in 1970 Vancouver. We have the downtown east side, which is a which is a pretty common in the in the, that period of time where you have 
uh, extremely low income group uh, close to the downtown, close to the inner city and the CBD. Part of that is an, is, is an historical response to uh, work in the city. Um, uh, you know, it's pretty common for low income groups to settle near, uh, you know, industries where they can get close access to. Um, so really sort of a concentric, the sort of the concentric rings model of, of post industrial, or of the industrial city was quite clear in Vancouver. You fast forward to 2005, and what you see is a, is a dramatic transformation of that morphology. And so, from from 1970 we to 2005, we have this sort of post-industrial city, and and in fact, not just post-industrial. Um, and I should qualify post-industrial: the movement of industry to uh, a non-industry, and in this case, a creative um, service-based economy. But also, we have a post-corporate society where a lot of corporate headquarters who may have, you know, sort of cited in Vancouver primarily f- for the um, staple or, uh, industries and t- timber and all this stuff, stuff but also a, a post-staple city, right? So, so no longer are, is timber coming into Vancouver to supply um, as, a, as part of a movement network. So 2005, that transformation means a, a whole lot for, for how, how and where people live. So in 2005, middle-income groups have been uh, primarily squeezed out lower income groups have have expanded the downtown east side has pretty much stayed low income for the most part but it's changing uh but lower income groups uh, are also cited in neighborhoods along the the uh the skytrain line into the along the kingsway corridor lower income groups are, are and neighborhoods are starting to pop up in suburbs right so and this this suburban issue is is quite an important one we've we've talked to geographers have been talking about the suburban suburbanization of or the, sorry, the, the uh, impoverza- impoverization of suburbia for, for a while in the United States. Um, there's been some research focused on Canada asking the same question. And what this shows us is that lower-income neighborhoods are starting to pop up in, in, in what were highly middle-class suburbs. The inner city, at the same time, the inner city that used to be lower-income groups is, uh, have pockets of lower-income, middle-income groups, are starting to intensify in terms of their affluent groups. Now, anybody who knows Vancouver, anybody who knows Toronto and Montreal... Um, who's been here and sort of hung out, walked around the city, you'd you, you probably notice that um, this is a, a pretty affluent downtown core. I mean, we've got, you know, we've got skyscrapers, we've got uh, the sort of the pedestal style of Vancouverism architecture that is really dramatic on the landscape. And uh, in Vancouver, more than maybe any other Canadian city, we've got these amazing walkways and, and amenities that that have been really fluffed up. And, and that's part of this process of the post-industrial city. But it's also a part of the the... the the creation of landscapes for the affluent groups, and so that's that's some of what we're, some of what we're seeing in, in, in Vancouver. You, you look at neighborhoods, and uh, some of the the maps that um, you you've produced show that the west side of Vancouver, yeah. which is has always had a history of affluence, and that's always been part of its historical geography. Mm. In many ways, um, you say this in the report that this is um, staunchly. Um, um, part of the the upper um, or city, I guess city number one is that yeah, right? Yeah. So this is the wealthiest and and getting wealthier. Mm-hmm. Um, but also there's a racial side to this as yeah, well. Yeah. Yeah. Now, now I, I didn't mention that when I was mentioning some of the morphology of the city, but it's true. There, there's a there is a west. I mean, it's classic in Vancouver. This sort of west east uh, geography, let's just say. And uh, and anyone living in the east uh, probably has a conception of the west, and anybody in the west has a conception in the east. Now, um, some of the affluent neighborhoods in the west have intensified, as you said. So, so uh, a lot of these neighborhoods that were cr- extremely stable, they've been they've been affluent neighborhoods for some time, have have remained that way. And the, these places uh, have increased increased in their in in their um, in their affluence. But but there is a racial component, and and so what we're seeing is that this. The city one, this this highly intensified and extensive, extensive, uh, affluent sort of neighborhoods, they're primarily native-born, right? The city three, those those cities at the bottom, those lower-income neighborhood cities, the neighborhoods really, those lower-income neighborhoods uh, show a disproportionate amount of of uh, recent immigrants and uh, visible minorities, right? So so this becomes an increasing uh, aspect in terms of asking the question. Um, how how has socioeconomic change kind of dovetailed with racial racial change, right? And and immigrant and the the pathways of immigrants. What's really really interesting actually is if you look if you took a snapshot of, of 1970 Vancouver, a good number of immigrants, uh, recent immigrants arriving from from uh, you know mainland China, Hong Kong, their primary destination was Strathcona, 
inner inner city Vancouver. Those were places where where you know family members are, places where business businesses are. Um, and then you fast forward to 2005; those receiving neighborhoods, those traditional receiving neighborhoods, have transformed, and they've they've pushed over and they've gone south towards the, the su- suburbs, right? So, so our our receiving neighborhoods are increasingly, although not just, but increasingly suburban suburban regions where families have, yeah. have sighted now. And now, what's happening to some of those um, neighborhoods that were traditionally in the post-war uh, decades? Um, where immigrant uh, groups would settle, what's happening to those neighborhoods? Well, the, you know, what's what's you know, a lot of people have been pointing to, and, and geographers, but not just geographers, politicians, and some politicians that are they're sort of interested in this, but also advocates talking about the role of gentrification and uh, and the transformation of the urban landscape to a, to cater for um, you know middle and upper middle class groups, what we call the new middle class, the creative class, and we can talk about that in a second. But um, Strathcona, Chinatown has has uh, you know has has been in many ways commodified it's been it's been fluffed up to 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 feature a sort of a live work play lifestyle that is common of the sort of the post-industrial um creative city uh also kind of like this neoliberal uh neoliberalization of the urban environment and so gentrification um really becomes a part of the story it's 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 definitely part of it because we're talking we're talking about the socioeconomic uh, makeup or morphology of the city. We're also talking about, you know, where and how people live. We're talking about housing. And so um, and gentrification and the, the sort of the influx of, of more affluent folks to the, to the inner city has meant that, that there's been a certain amount of displacement. And so recent arriving immigrants, um, you know, who are looking for affordable housing are not finding it in the inner city in ways that they used to in the past. Uh, so, there, there, you know, there's some... Um, um, movement towards uh, living overcrowded, perhaps uh, doubling up, tripling up families in in suburban homes to make do, partly because of uh, rising rents and and the, the decrease in affordable housing due to gentrification pressures. I want to continue on this and discuss more, looking at the causes of uh, this polarization and and these uh, disparities. Uh, but we're going to take a quick break and go to uh, uh, some music and be back in just a second. This is The City here on CITR 101.9 FM, CITR.ca, and syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM. We'll be right back. Don't act like, no, no 
Welcome back to the city here on CHR 101.9 FM. You just heard from Slam Dunk, and the track was Dying Breed. We're going to go back uh, to Nick Lynch. Nick Lynch is my guest here in studio on the city, and uh, he is uh, co-author of Divisions and Disparities in Lotus Land, uh, looking at income uh, disparity and polarization in Vancouver um, between 1970 and 2005. And before we took a break, Nick, we we're discussing um, some of the causes and, and reasons why we're seeing um, sort of the hollowing out of the middle class and traditionally immigrant or working class uh, neighborhoods with affordable housing, rental housing stock, um, transition and gentrify. And I want to explore some of these issues. One of the findings also in this report is how we see this increasing polarization um, that's quite vivid and quite visible, and this is in the context of of uh, the mainstream media's incessant coverage of the pigeon um, anti gentrification protests, mm-hmm. and um, in in some ways they kept saying you know activists calling this perceived gentrification, and I just with that um, sort of in the background, I want you to uh, relate that to some of the findings of this work and speak to what we are seeing in Vancouver and and yeah. how those. Um, how those play out on the urban landscape and, and often how this does um, and can result in um, contestation and, uh, and conflict. Yeah. Yeah. So as I, you know, as I, as I was mentioning, there's, there's sort of a new morphology, soci- socioeconomic morphology of the city. And uh, this is, this has been playing out in different ways, of course, and, and the sort of the newest installment of, of Vancouver's uh, uh, gentrification story the unraveling of of, um, of the new capitalization of, of urban land and the displacement of lower income people, specifically in the downtown east side, is you know has, has been uh, most most uh, clear or very clear in this in this sort of the pigeon restaurant case. Of course, uh, as we were saying before, talking before the radio show, talking about pigeon as sort of you know jumping the boundaries of gentrification. Um, what, what's what's really important to note here is that is that uh, you know the the socioeconomic change um, and income change in Vancouver is taking place over a long period of time. Of course, our study is longitudinal; it, it thinks long term, thirty um, five year period, and and in that thirty five year period, we have a, a dramatic transformation, as I said, between a sort of a post corporate, post staple, post industrial city to a to. A, or, to a situation where we now have a sort of a creative economy, uh, an economy dominated by individuals in the sort of the creative sectors. Um, and, and so the downtown east side, for example, and a lot of these sort of vulnerable, exploited, exploited neighborhoods, uh, specifically in the inner city, become places where um, they're destinations where, uh, where new capital can, can sort of flood into. And that means, and that means that um, that those individuals uh, that that were living in those neighborhoods are, are essentially displaced, and that's really the you know the crux of this problem is asking the question, um, well, several questions, and one of them, you know, what's happening to the middle class, and what is why does that matter, and also where are the individuals, lower income individuals, as they're priced out, as they're pushed out of the city, uh, where do they go, and and how do they how do they get how do they get to where they're going? You know, one of the things we said before the, the break there was that a lot of these individuals are, are having to move to the suburbs. Um, and so, you know, th- there's, there's a variety of different implications that are happening because of, because of this transition um, to a, to a sort of a, a polarized th- multi-city uh, socioeconomic status. And one of those is, is certainly um, the transformation of urban land for, 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 you know, new middle-class groups and groups that can afford it. Uh, downtown east side is also seeing it's not just restaurants of course i mean that's part of part of the 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 process of gentrification involves a new sort of cultural appropriation of space 
the uh, consumption is a really important aspect of gentrification. And Pigeon is a, is a perfect example of, of the, the movement of gentrification through consumption. Um, you know, in a way, those individuals that go to Pigeon are consuming, consuming the, the, the danger. The ex, uh, they're exploiting this sense of, of intrigue. It's almost like a jungle uh, in, in the Downton East Side. But, but, you know, SROs, single-room occupancy buildings, are also being bulldozed or being uh, renovated um, to make way for, for uh, you know, different upper-income groups. We have examples where there's mixed, mixed development um, um, and, uh, and so, you know, the Woodward's case is a, is a perfect prime example. In many ways, it's, it's done some good things. It's thinking outside the box, but, uh, a lot of the, uh, the, uh, uh, opponents say, for example, that is this enough? Are we providing enough lower income, so, sort of social housing for those people who need it? And by and large, the answer is no. The amount of demand for lower income housing in places like the downtown east side and, and its bordering neighborhoods is really high. And we're not replacing, the replacement rate is really low. And so um, that becomes part of the policy problem as well. One of the organizers with the Carnegie Community Action Project uh, said, uh, commented that the media, they, they released their annual hotel survey for 2012 and, yeah. and they track the, the increases in the rental rates for privately owned single room occupancy yeah. hotels. And uh, this was coming right after the media's uh, real focus on Pigeon and um, commented and, and, and said that out of this whole press uh, press conference and release of this report basically saying that Woodward's has had an effect or yeah. or over the last couple of years, um, SRO rental rates um, from their uh, research, um, those those rents are on the rise. Yeah. But the media just after, you know, half an hour of this only wanted to talk about pigeon. And I guess this is maybe a more uh, policy-oriented question, but why should, why, from an perhaps from an ethical and political, and also from a practical point of view, why should people care, um, particularly middle-class people? Why should they care about some of these changes? A mm. lot of people, and the media was the mainstream media was very, um, uh, very blunt about this, but saying that the changes that we're seeing in the downtown east side. Um, are good. It's cleaning up the neighborhood. Um, it's not uh, unsightly. It's not blighted. It's uh, it's seen revitalization. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just want hope maybe you could reflect on that. Yeah. Let, let me just back up for a second. One of the one of the really interesting things about gentrification research is that uh, is that you know well classic gentrification research has always has been about you know um, focusing on the transformation of working class homes and and it's been about the displacement of lower, like the direct displacement of lower income pe- people, and that that primarily means, you know, people moved from from um, you know, physically moved out of the neighborhood because of price rents going up, and that's part of the process. What's happening, and one of the thing that one of the things that we do in geography, and specifically urban geography, and when we're focusing on contemporary forms of gentrification, is we're asking how has gentrification changed over the years, right? So we're not simply just looking at classic gentrification. I mean, that's part of the process in Vancouver, but that that happened in the 60s, 70s, 80s. What we're seeing now is these sort of post-recession corporate forms of gentrification where um, different players are involved. The state is involved, uh, corporations are involved, and, and, uh, and they're changing the landscape. And what we're seeing then is we're seeing that displacement isn't simply, you know, the... F- the physical removal through rent increases, but it's also indirect, right? So, so what we're doing is we're transforming an entire urban landscape, catering to specific individuals. That's pricing people out, but that's also changing the culture of, of the urban landscape in the sense that people are feeling no longer socially available to, to go into those places, right? Mm-hmm. In the American context, we have there's this concept called revanchism. So cities have been uh, remodeled to, to really exclude individuals through, you know, bum-proof benches, they quote-unquote bum-proof benches, and, and water water uh, installations that sp- spread water so that, you know, people can't sleep on the ground. So there's these things are happening too. So it's really important that we recognize that gentrification involves direct and indirect displacement. Um, the other thing too is why do we care? And, and one of the things that cities have been doing in, in Toronto and Vancouver, but, uh, but everywhere, and specifically in the United States, but, but in Canada too, is they've been, they've been transforming the language, the, the, the policy language from gentrification, which is a dirty word, to revitalization. And they've been, hiding, they've been often hiding some of their transformations in the urban landscape, the recapitalization of the urban landscape through the concept of redevelopment and revitalization. Um, one of the things that, that's, that we need to, to think about is that, is that revitalization, well, first of all, actually, there isn't, there, isn't, there isn't two options. There isn't just gentrification, revitalization, and decay. 
right? There's middle grounds. There's an option to to rethink these urban landscapes that that create places of affordable housing, that create places of mixed social use, um, that that aren't simply catering to the affluent the affluent groups. And so, why should middle income people care? Well, partly this becomes uh, you know in, in there's uh, so many different ways we can think about this, but one is, you know, do we want a just city? What kind of a city do we want to live in? Um, the other thing too is that we've, you know, we've these people that these people these these community this community that is living on the street, this community that is living, uh, you know, moment to moment in temporary shelters when they can get them, they they're going to have to go somewhere, and and, and we need to provide some sort of care and, and you know health care, or um, you know mental mental health care. Uh, we need to provide shelters for these folks uh, because th- they're going to get displaced and they're going to be going somewhere. Now, the the question now becomes is, you know, uh, how does NIMBY play out? So there's all these different um, groups, neighborhood groups that are opposing some of the movement of lower income uh, street people, I guess if you want to call them that, um, to different neighborhoods. And so, uh, you know, this becomes a question of equ- equ- equity, right? This becomes a moral question of, of what kind of city do we want to have? But the other thing too is that there's there's uh, indica- indication in the literature that um, you know an, I- an increasing in polarization and social inequality decreases economic growth, right? So we have to think about some of the larger macroeconomic issues, um, and uh, and and think about uh, think about those as well. As as we see um, higher concentrations of poverty, of, of often racialized and immigrant poverty in, in the suburbs, and also if people are being displaced from SROs in Vancouver yeah. um, and they're headed to Surrey, what are some of these policy implications for the suburbs? And at this point, as far as I can tell, you know, Surrey's mayor, Diane Watts, has said, well, if you can't afford Vancouver, come on into Surrey. Um, yeah. But I feel like, in a way, this is problematic because they're perhaps not anticipating a lot of these larger trends um, that suburbs are likely to see if we aren't thinking regionally about what mm. does development look like in the city and is it an inclusive and a just city? Yeah, well, you know, one of the things happening in Vancouver as well as uh, other Canadian, major Canadian cities is that these suburbs, um, these suburban municipalities are, are building suburban downtown squares, right? So, so they're, they're almost becoming these quasi-urban centers. Um, and and this is this is partly an attempt to to uh, to pull in you know the creative class to pull in new new middle income uh, new middle and upper income groups um, to those areas uh, and and but as you say you know th- th- at the same time as this is happening we're seeing an increases of of lower income neighborhoods and families that are having to relocate to the suburbs and part of this is because they're seeking lower income housing so there is a re- there is a, a looming reality for these suburban municipalities because they're going to have to deal with these problems um now you know when it comes down to it what we're seeing is that these suburban areas have uh have scarce social and rental housing units right they don't really exist as much as um as much as they do did in the inner city uh, there's very few social services dedicated in in suburban regions. Um, you know, I'm talking about settlement services, I'm talking about sort of uh, affordable housing or even language training services. At the same time, you know, as I said before, we're seeing overcrowd overcrowding, but not just overcrowding. We're seeing overcrowding in unlicensed rental places, like you know, uh, um, uh, secondary suites that are unlicensed in some cases. Um, and some people, some folks in the, in the suburbs are feeling like, and, and this is some research coming coming out of Toronto. Um, some recent immigrants feel like that you know there's a culture of tenureship of ownership of housing and and they're putting more and more of the money that that they get into into holding their their home ownership status but that means is that is that uh, their in- more and more income is going into putting a roof over their head they have less opportunity to you know to get uh, to, to to be involved in the community through recreation all these different things so there's there's a variety of of implications that are happening um, now and, and there's a variety of policy options that we can think about as well. What might some of those policy options be? Yeah, well, good question. <laughs> now, now, you know, well, I, and maybe first before I ask that, yeah. um, what are, well, within within the study, you um, and David Lay, as, as co-authors, um, made a number of, um, or, or essentially um, made some projections about what, what the trends look like. Yeah. Um, and what are those trends likely to be if... Um, policies continue at the way yeah. they are, um, or in some cases 
maybe we see even further decreases in, in uh, social assistance and other types of subsidy. Um, and then following up on that, um, what are some of the policy uh, recommendations that you would make? Yeah, we, you know, one of one of the important aspects of this research is that we're asking, you know, what's the future outlook, right? So our research goes up to 2006. We're in 2013 now, um, and there's future research coming along uh, in the pipeline in, in Toronto. And also, in fact, not just Vancouver, Montreal, which are some of the sister studies. Uh, we're seeing new, um, new monies from the Canadian government uh, put into um, exploring six other CMAs. Now, the future outlook in Vancouver is, is assuming business as usual, we're, we're going to see an, an increasing trend of polarization and inequality, just simply put. Um, the, the, uh, the geography, the, 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 the uh, particular geography of that social income inequality and polarization will intensify. So as we said before, there's a sort of a east-west division between Vancouver and as well as a suburbanization. What we'll see, business as usual, is, is, a, is an intensification of that city one, that affluent groups intensifying in the downtown core, um, as, as well as the metro Vancouver, uh, sort of the south of the downtown area. Um, we'll see an intensification along some of those Kingsway corridor lines, although, the, you know, it's hard to say how some of those uh, individuals and neighborhoods will transform because of the intensification um, of the of the transit lines themselves. I mean... You know, it's hard to at this point to predict. But the other thing too is then the suburbs, and the suburbs become these uh, become these destinations or pockets of poverty that are going to intensify if things don't change. Um, so the out- future outlook, business as usual, not good. It's worse in Toronto. That that uh, middle class, the middle Toronto middle class is uh, t- by twenty twenty five is going to be almost extinct. Right? It'll be it'll be uh, be extremely scarce to be qualified in that research as middle class. And that means that the the suburbs in Toronto and Vancouver are going to be, um, well, I mean, you know, some research talks about these sort of uh, ghettoization, this concept of ghettoization. Some people fear that that may happen, right? Ghettoization by race and income. Now, what can we do to to stop? There's there's really a whole bunch of different things. Now, in the suburbs, one of the things that that we can do is, is, for example, legalize secondary suites, right? Find different ways of providing housing. Done this partly in some some destinations in uh, in in Vancouver. One of the things this does is improve safety. It improves quality. Uh, we want to make sure that individuals, specifically recent immigrants, have a good place to live. The other thing too is you have to increase the amount of information for. for and I'm thinking about Im- uh, recent immigrants again. Is you have to increase uh, increase the information and the quality of information that's getting out to those immigrants that are coming to Canada, right? So when they're thinking about moving and they're making the move, they need to know where they can live, right? They need to have those options. It's got to be transparent. Um, and also in multiple languages. And of course, uh, you know, in, in downtown, the downtown setting and the suburban setting, we need to find, uh, we need to find monies for shelters, temporary housing, emergency housing. S- these aren't places, you know, where people just want to hang out and live by and large. They use that in order to, as a stepping stone to get better housing, right? So we need to think about these places, not as, as sites where people are just sitting around living and, and having a grand old time. We need to think about them as places, as stepping stones to better housing. Is it, on that point is there a transformation though in the language um describing homelessness and vision yeah. came to power saying originally saying we're going to end homelessness yeah, right. and then it was changed to we're going to end street homelessness right and i'm just curious whether i mean and and basic social housing um not supportive housing um has seen essentially no increase yeah in nbc in mm-hmm. yeah. and i'm just uh, w- with that, with that point that you made, what's the significance of that um, yeah. in this? Yeah, that's that's a great a great point because uh, homelessness and housing issues it's not it's not sort of a black and white situation where you have somebody with a home and somebody without a home. There's there's various sort of if you want to think about homelessness on a continuum, yeah. um, you know we go from sort of fully housed to to you know living street living, but of course in between that gets lost precarious housing, right? Or people who are who are, who have housing but might you know, might lose it, uh, partly because of their, uh, because of, you know, a recession has created a situation where they've lost uh, an em- employment opportunity. Part of the problem here is that um, with this, this sort of the great recession we are now, or coming out of hopefully, is, is that, uh, is that and, and also in this sort of post-industrial uh, landscape is that there's more con- contingent labor, there's more part-time labor, there's less uh, long-term tenured labor, right? And, and at the same time, wage rates versus past generations is lower. 
And so all that means is that is that uh, finding and keeping housing is increasingly difficult. And so and so that that speaks to your point that the city the city is you know it's it's got a mandate. It's it really should have a mandate of of not just thinking about uh, the the folks that are living on the street, but also the communities of people um, in lower income neighborhoods who are struggling to pay for housing, right? And of course, we're seeing that some of the research comes out that immigrant recent immigrants are, are are struggling to pay for their housing, whether it's whether it's rental or home ownership, and that that becomes a serious long term prospect for. Um, those individuals at the, uh, in those in those neighborhoods, and the, and then really the health of our cities. Let's take a quick break, but I want to come back and uh, discuss more of um, an alternative future and those policy options um, if we want to address uh, these troubling trends in income polarization uh, within Vancouver and beyond. This is the city here on CITR 101.9 FM, CITR.ca, and syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM, CJSF.ca. And available as a podcast at thecityfm.org. I'm Andy Longhurst. My guest, Nick Lynch, uh, UBC geographer. Um, We're going to be right back. amount of changes happening in the world, it's almost impossible to get a clear picture of what's really going on. We are trapped within the logic of capitalism, leaving us unable to imagine what comes next. The Extra Environmentalist brings the perspectives of people who can see the whole picture and are ready for whatever comes our way. Tune in to The Extra Environmentalist every Wednesday from 2 to 3 p.m. on CITR 101.9 FM. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you. Despite the fact that 8 in 10 Canadians are against warrantless and costly online spying, the government remains stubborn, set to cement this scheme into law. With their huge PR budget, they've unleashed a reckless and irresponsible campaign that suggests warrantless collection of our private data is on par with a phone book. 
We can't let them trick Canadians. Go to www.openmedia.ca now to find out what you can do to get involved and stop this smoke and mirrors campaign the government has started. I will say B, Peru. I'll do it. And that's your final answer? Yes. You can buy a new car. You just want... $33,055.78. To everyone who donated to this year's fun drive, CITR would like to say thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you to everyone who helped us meet and exceed our goal of $30,000. Your generous donations help us support local artists, businesses, and marginalized voices in the community. And special thanks to our major sponsors of the Fun Drive Finale Silent Auction, The Cobalt at thecobalt.ca, Travel Cuts UBC at travelcuts.com, and Chad Woodley at the Sanitary Electric Company at tattoosbychad.com. And welcome back to the city here on CITR 101.9 FM, CITR.ca, and syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM, Burnaby. My guest, Nick Lynch, he's a UBC geographer and co-author of a recent study, um, Divisions and Disparities in Lotus Land. And uh, Nick, I want to continue with um, some of the policy options. If we wanted to address some of these of uh, larger trends and what you say, a business-as-usual um, outlook, um, with worsening um, income polarization within the region, uh, you had touched on the you know looking at ways to increase the amount of for- affordable housing stock. Um, but what are some of the other options? Yeah, th- there's really it's it's amazing. You know, when we think about it, there's there's a a, a huge grab bag of opportunities here. There's uh, you know it's not just about housing. Of course, that's an important aspect. Um, but you know, th- for example. Um, I focus here on, on some of the research I've been doing is income support strategies. And so, you know, the classic, uh, the classic macroeconomic perspective is, is uh, um, um, tax, the, tax the rich, right? And so, and, and provide increased transfers to the bottom uh, socioeconomic groups. And that, you know, that could be refundable tax credits or something. So that's, those are sort of classic econ- econ- um, economistic uh, um, action. But of course, you know, there's other things too. I mean, we, we need to think about, for example, energy programs within low income housing. And so what, you know, what that means, for example, is finding ways of, 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 of funding some of the, um, uh, energy, energy use, you know, some of the money, some of the money that, that individuals, uh, households pay in order to keep their houses going. The, these, these types of things are extremely important. So we can find ways of uh, providing sort of uh, different ways of doing that. Now, one thing that happens in, in Toronto is that they're actually doing something called tower renewal and tower renewal is, is sort of a refur- refurbishing these huge, gigantic um, apartment complexes. Uh, Vancouver doesn't have that. I mean, we do have housing uh, apartment-style housing, um, non-sort of you know glitzy apartment-style housing, of course. But and so so there is there is potentially an opportunity for renewal of some of those places. And by that, I really mean re- you know retrofitting and refurbishing these places, making sure these these uh, homes have good windows and and they're not sort of leaking money out into the environment. Um, you know, also, as I said before, new rental housing strategies, and these things include basement suites, of course, include providing more affordable housing, including uh, more emergency and shelters. Um, but also, again, you know, maintaining those existing apartment-style suites. One of the problems we have in Vancouver is that, and, and in other cities too, is that uh, there's no money for developers to create apartments, right? They, they, they by and large, create uh, huge um condos because that's where the money is and that's where the square footage to money ratio is and so there's very little incentive since since the sort of the 70s 80s in canadian cities to provide uh provide apartment style housing um um, now the other thing too is that we we need to sort of find ways primarily at the city level but but also in in different um scale uh, different scales is is to to make sure that there's an incentive in there and and usually the city builds in a bonusing incentive if if a developer builds uh, affordable housing they get you know a bonus a density bonus uh the some of some uh, opponents figure that that's not enough right we need to we need to up the percentage of of affordable social housing to to the developers um uh, developments um you know th- there's so there, there is there is a variety of, of options that we that we can do and and we really need to find those and and uh, and, and not simply um, leave it up to the market. So that the, sort of the tendency at this point is is to let the market decide and and unfortunately the market uh, won't care that much about lower income people. 
So, right. yeah. When we talk, you mentioned it, we talk about the provision of and creation of rental housing and, and programs to stimulate um, the, the construction of, of, um, of market rental housing. And this is something I've talked about on the show previously in a program in Vancouver, which essentially um, is allows development to go through uh, without development cost levies, essentially sort yeah. of giving a, a tax freebie on the costs associated with development, essentially a development tax, yeah. um, as the name suggests, um, for purpose-built market rental housing. Um, but a, a number of critics, um, and I would share this concern, is that those rental rates are not, there's no guarantee, right? Again, mm-hmm. that's left completely to the market. Yeah. Are these... Is this, I mean, and some people say, well, this is better than nothing. The creation of of purpose-built market rental housing that is preserved and cannot be converted or destroyed, et cetera, et cetera. Um, But do we need to go beyond that and look to something like social housing? Do we need to look at ways to actually have some sort of idea of what those rents are going to be? I mean, one example, this is with the laneway house example on Craigslist, I uh, saw a, a laneway house uh, going for five thousand dollars. It was yeah. like a three bedroom, yeah. um, sort of done in in high end uh, fittings and everything. And I just thought this is not, you know, even if you split that three ways, that's not affordable housing. No, the the yeah, that's really you know, it's it's unfortunate because that's basically what's you know we we've we've found new ways of creating housing, but but there's no incentive for that housing to go to people in need, right? And so the laneway housing is a perfect example, primarily because, I mean, a lot of these laneway homes are being developed in, in uh, well, some of them are being de- developed in really sort of stable, affluent neighborhoods where um, where those rents can be can be quite, quite, quite amazingly high. Um, you know, is it enough? No, it's certainly not enough. And, and, and uh, we, we really need to think about, you know, it, it, it's the problem with housing is that it's not, there's no silver bullet, of course. There's no one, one uh, policy um, fixes the situation. We've got a very complex problem in our cities. We've got a complex problem of, of poverty. Um, we've got a complex, specifically in Vancouver, we've got a complex problem of socioeconomic polarization. And, and we've got a comp- complex pro- 